All right, let me invite you to turn to Matthew 24 this morning. Matthew 24. So uh, one of the, the blessings of preaching through books of the Bible uh, is that you deal with all of the verses in that book, uh, or you should anyway, Th- that all of the Bible is inspired, all of it's the word of God, all of it is profitable. So therefore, it makes a lot of sense to work all the way through a book. In fact, in God's design, he gave us books. He didn't just give us little lectures. And you know from reading a book, you need to read the whole thing to understand it. The Gospel of Matthew as a, as a whole and by and large is very simple to understand. It's essentially evidence that Jesus is, this, is the Christ and that you should believe in him. However, there's also details. And, and that's where not only is it a blessing, I believe, to preach through books of the Bible, but it's also a challenge because you deal with all the verses. And every book of the New Testament has challenging verses. Every single one. This is one of the challenging ones in Matthew that we're going to look at this morning. So the, a text like this calls for and I think demands a, a, an amount of humility. Really all of the Bible requires humility to study it, but a text like this especially because the history of Christianity is full of godly men and women who have understood and interpreted this very passage differently. So when we come before a text like that, we understand that, we have humility. Also when we're, we're talking about matters like this, which are the end times or the last things, As with all doctrine in scripture, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. It's important to remember that. That with regard to the main issues regarding Jesus and his return, the Bible speaks utterly clearly that Jesus is going to return in power one day. He's going to return as judge and he's going to set up an eternal kingdom. And all those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who have believed the gospel will be part of his eternal kingdom. These are the main and plain things. And when you deal with the timing of those events, it becomes more complicated. That's what we're dealing with this morning. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the context here. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he, he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for that must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's the verse we're going to focus on this morning. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom, let me start over. 
and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Now, if you go back to about chapter 21, you'll see what's happened is Jesus has come into Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the center of worship for the Jewish people. He's come in and the first place that he went when he entered Jerusalem was the temple. And he goes into the temple and he rebukes fiercely the religious leaders. So fiercely he, he overturns the tables of those that were extorting the people of God for worship. So it's a, a fierce confrontation from the Son of God. And then he begins to denounce the false religious teachers there. And then he casts woes down upon them, which essentially in the Old Testament time was a way of cursing people, saying essentially you're cursed by God. He, he casts all these woes down on them. And then it comes to a crescendo in chapter 23 and verse 38, when Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, look what he says about Jerusalem and the temple and the false apostate religious system that is utterly corrupt. He says in chapter 23, verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. Now think about the disciples at this point who've been following him for about three years and who know him very well, who've been privy to his private teaching. And the, the disciples, we come to learn in Luke's gospel, if you want to look at Luke 19, 11 at some point, you'll see that the, the, the apostles understood the destruction of the temple and the coming of Jesus to be one event. And, and their, their question indicates that in 24, 1. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, again, so they're leaving this temple complex Jesus has just fiercely denounced the Pharisees for a few days. They're leaving. They're pointing out the beauty of the buildings. It was an amazingly beautiful building. Verse 2, Jesus answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Essentially, this beautiful building is going to be destroyed. Luke's gospel at one point adds the, the fact that you will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And that, of course, is the Roman armies. And you, you can read that in Luke's account, if you like. And then Jesus essentially goes on to say in verse 3, here's the disciples' question, tell us, when will these things be? And that seems to be a reference to the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that seems to be a reference to the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory. Again, remember the disciples recognize him as the Christ. They understand from the Old Testament that Christ is coming to set up an eternal kingdom. I believe they see this as one event. The temple is going to be destroyed. This catastrophe is coming to the Jews that have rejected you and you're coming again. And I think what Jesus does here is in this text is he clarifies, no, the, no, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and then there is going to be a delay in my coming. And in fact, until Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, there is going to be a delay and the world is going to carry on with wars and rumors of wars and apostasy and all kinds of other terrible things. And then what's going to follow up in chapters 25 is Jesus is going to tell several parables calling his followers to wait, to be patient, to wait for his return. Now, one of the things, so, so this sermon, again, is going to be one part. I'm going to tell you what I think the text means here in verse 14, but I'm also going to try to give you some tools to study the Bible so you can figure out how I came to those conclusions, and then also 
my hope as a pastor is to equip you to study the Bible on your own. Look what it says in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout, all, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. You see, most people read that and on face value, they'd read it and see, well, that's obviously not been fulfilled yet. I believe that has been fulfilled. And I'm gonna to try to explain it this morning. I think that Jesus is here talking about something that is going to take place before the destruction of Jerusalem. Before the throwing down of this temple and these buildings, like all the rest of this passage, wars, rumors of wars, the beginning of birth pains, tribulation, you're gonna be handed up, there's gonna be apostasy. And verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. How did I come to that conclusion? Well, if you're going to read the Bible and understand the Bible, you're going to have to give yourself to understanding the meaning of words because very clearly the Bible is made up of words. You cannot rightly understand the Bible if you do not rightly understand the meaning of words. And you are reading a document written in another language over 2,000 years ago. An ancient language, now translated into modern English. Now, that does not lead to the conclusion, well, I just can't understand the Bible. Absolutely not. The Bible, by and large, is very clear and plain. But it also does produce some challenges. But a bit of study, which again, if you're going to wrestle with the end times teaching, you're going to have to give yourself to quite a bit of study, which will involve rightly defining Bible words. Let me, let me give you a, a bit of a flavor of that. Like, for instance, if you're studying your, your New Testament, one of the words Paul likes to use in describing the spread of the gospel is the word mystery, the mystery of the gospel. When Paul uses the word mystery, when the New Testament uses the word mystery, it means something completely different than we use the word today. When we use the word mystery, we're thinking of something like, well, a detective solving a case, or Sherlock Holmes is going to figure these clues out and put them together in a logical way. That's not what the word mystery means in your New Testament. It means something that was revealed in the Old Testament, but now has been fulfilled. That's what the word mystery means in the Bible. What I'm saying is there are Bible words that are used and that have meanings differently than the way we use the word. One of those words in this text is the word world, world, this gospel of the kingdom, I think we know what that is, the good news about Jesus, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. You see, there's many people believe, good Christians believe, that until before Jesus returns, the gospel is going to go to every single person on earth or every single nation and it sure seems to be indicating that but verse 14 I'm going to argue is talking about before the temple this was fulfilled before 70 AD and let me show you why it comes down to what does the whole world mean well how do you learn about the, the how do you learn the meaning of a word how do you look at your bible and figure out what a word means like let's take whole world one of the ways you learn about what a word means and don't you like my Chewbacca band-aid I meant to take that off by the way I'm sorry Give a little more dramatic presentation. Uh, you know, one time I flipped off the congregation doing that. It was totally unintentional, but my wife still laughs about it. You've got to be careful when you're not so dexterous. One of the ways you determine how a word is used is by usage. Usage. If Kev Kevin Stedman takes me out after church and sh shows me in his car his new pistol, I'm going to look at the pistol and say, that's cool. That's cool. Almost everybody in this room understands what I mean by that's cool. It means, well, that's interesting and I like it. 
How do you, why, why does that's cool mean that? Because of usage. That's how we use that. People of my generation and my age group in general, that's how we use that phrase. It's usage. Well, how does this word use? World. We'll go back to Luke chapter 2, and you're going to get to do a bit of a Bible drill this morning. It's going to be fun. Actually, it's forward to Luke 2. Luke does come after Matthew. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Incidentally, when, when it says the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, first of all, this is not the usual word for world in the New Testament. See, this is one of the, the differentiations our English does not make. Greek has at least three words for world, and this is one of the least common used of them, which literally this word means inhabited area, regional area. It means a specific region. See, when we think whole world, we think every single person on planet Earth. That's just how we use that terminology. That is not how the Bible uses that terminology, always. And it certainly is not, I don't believe, here. Let me show you why. In Luke chapter 2, this is a text you're familiar with. In verse 1, you have a familiar verse. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Does that mean people in Japan? No. Because the Greek word world means region. It means region. That doesn't come through in our English translation of the text, but you can see that from that verse. Let me show you a few other ones. Look in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. I love to hear those Bible pages. Uh, turning. Some of us still use this archaic technology, right, of a book. Acts 11, verse 28. Acts 11 and verse 28. This is the same word as you find in Matthew 24. Acts 11, 28, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you read First and Second Corinthians, you read Philippians, you're going to find out that there was a famine that took place where? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. It's a region. It's a region. Not only that, look at Acts 24.5. Since you're in Acts, keep going to chapter 24. Since this Bible drill fun. Acts 24.5. By the way, this, this text is interesting. Look at, look at what people say about Paul the Apostle and his ministry, right? This, this, you want to be a preacher? This is, how you, this is how you'll be thought of. It's part of it. You want to be a Christian? Very likely this is how you may be thought of. Look at Acts 24 and 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's a specific regional area. And not only that, when Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, what does it go on to say? As a witness to the nations. The word nations there is a reference to the Gentiles. It's a reference to the Gentiles. In fact, if you study Matthew's gospel, you'll find that he almost always uses that word to refer to Gentiles. Let me show you one in Acts. If you go back to Acts 14, 27. 
I'll tell you about the significance of that in just a minute. Acts 14 and 27. Right now, I'm just trying to show you usage. If you're going to study what you need to do, you need to understand how words are used. You look at how they're used in other places. You will find that the word Matthew or Jesus uses in Matthew 24 for world means inhabited area or region. You'll find that the word that Matthew uses for nations often means not like every nation like Japan, Canada, Madagascar. It means Gentiles in general. Let me show you. Same word here in Acts 14.27. Acts 14.27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, which becomes a major theme of the New Testament. The Jews are not only the people of God. Now anybody from any nation on the planet who believes in Jesus, any of the Gentiles opposed to just only the Jews, now any of the Gentiles can and will be saved who believe. This is a major controversy in the New Testament. It's hard for us to comprehend that because we've grown up hearing anybody who believes can and will be saved. But you think of the Jewish history where you have uh, several thousand years of, of history of the Jews where they are the chosen people of God. And then you get Jesus on the scene and part of his teaching and then Paul the apostle on the scene and a big part of his teaching, read the book of Romans, is that now anyone who believes will be part of the people of God. This is revolutionary to the Jewish mindset. The disciples' minds are here being blown. That's part of the reason why I think this was fulfilled in the first century. Now, that issue of the Gentiles is, is a big deal. And I'm going to go back to Matthew 24 just to kind of uh, place myself there. Matthew 24 and 14. Now, how do you understand the meaning of a word? How do, you, how do you figure it out? First of all is usage. Secondly is context. Secondly is context. Now imagine, actually you don't have to imagine because a couple of weeks ago I had a air, an air conditioner repairman come to my house, right? And there's much fear and trembling that the air conditioner may be dead in June, right? And now my savings will be emptied paying for this big machine to cool my house. So the air conditioner repairman's there and he's working on my air conditioner. Praise God, in this case, it was an easy fix. And he says, here, hold your hand over the vent and feel. And I say, that's cool. Now, why do I mean something different in that example than the previous example? Context. Context. See what I mean? Let me give you another example. Let's say we're driving through the countryside and we pass this big farm. And, and I look at I say, whoa, look at all those hogs. What do you think I mean? What do you think I mean the little fat animal with a funny nose? But if we're driving through Meridian and we pass the Chunky River Harley dealership and I say, look at all those hogs, what do I mean and why? It's context. It's context. Why do I think that this is talking about something that was fulfilled in the, before the destruction of the temple? The main reason is the very first word in verse 14, and, and. Because if you read this passage like we did, but if you read it and study it, verses 1 through, 4, 1 through 13, he's talking about events leading up to the destruction of the temple. And then he says, and 
This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all, I think it's Gentiles. And then the end will come. The end there is the end of the temple. This is not the word, this is not a word, this is not the word that's used for the return of Jesus Christ like you read up in verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's a different matter. When he says the sign of your coming, that's the sign of your presence. I believe he's talking about the end of the temple here. The end of the temple. Now, this is a challenging verse, no matter how you slice it. Um, this is a challenging verse. Well, one of the challenges of this text is when is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and when is he talking about his second coming? And there's just all kinds of different views on that. I'm not going to put you to sleep right now with those. We'll have to look at them at some point, but not this morning. So when you're facing a challenging verse like this, what do you do? Well, you look at words. You look at their usage and their context. Well, you can also look to other scripture, to other scripture. So we've looked primarily at the Gospels and Acts. I believe it was Paul the Apostle's view that the gospel had been proclaimed to the whole world in his lifetime. Let me say that again. I believe that it was Paul the Apostle's view that the gospel had been proclaimed to the known world in his lifetime, that this has been fulfilled in Paul's lifetime. I believe he thought that way. Now let me show you why I think that. Go to Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 8. Again, this comes down to how these words are just generally used and thought of in the New Testament. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's not including Canada and Japan and Tanzania. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This is what Paul says of the Roman Christians. The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed in all the world. The faith of the Roman church is proclaimed in all the world. He doesn't mean by that every single place on planet earth. Every person on planet earth knows about this. No, it's in the known world. Colossians 1 is an even stronger example of this. Colossians 1, stay awake. We'll get to the preaching in, in just a minute. Colossians 1. I believe that Paul saw I believe what that passage in Matthew is talking about is the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles, which again is a revolutionary thing and which happened before the destruction of the temple and which caused quite an upheaval among the Jews and among the Gentiles in the early history of Christianity. That's what Jesus, I believe, is talking about. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a witness to every nation, I think he's talking about that, the, just the fact that the gospel goes to the, the, the Gentiles before the temple will be destroyed. I believe Paul saw it that way as well. Let me show you why. Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. This, again, is just you're, you're hopefully picking up some of the normal way the New Testament uses this language. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now notice we're talking about the gospel, right? The same gospel of the kingdom Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, 14. The gospel, verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world 
it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day we heard it and understand the grace, understood the grace of God in truth. The, whole, the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world according to Paul's understanding. Drop down to chapter 1 and verse 23 of Colossians. Chapter 1 and verse 23 of Colossians. Actually, I'll start in verse 21 because this is about salvation in Christ. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body, in, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. By the way, before we move on, has that happened for you? Has that happened to you? You who were alienated, or are you still alienated from God? Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is reconciled. He's brought you together. How did he do it? The body of his flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's salvation. Look what he says in verse 23. If indeed. This is one of those perseverance texts we talked about. That salvation has happened if this is the case. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So there's the gospel again, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's other verses we could look at. If you're, more, if you're interested in this issue, we can talk more at another time. That's all that I'm going to show you for right now. I hope that's sufficient to show you in Paul's view, the gospel had been proclaimed in all the world and in all the creation. Summary. The word means region. The context is the destruction of the temple. Paul's view was the spreading of the gospel. What's the significance of that? Well, the first significance of that is the fact what Jesus said would happen was fulfilled. Whenever Jesus is denouncing the Jews, as he does in Matthew 21 through 23, who is thinking about the gospel going to the Gentiles? Certainly not the disciples who are looking for Jesus to establish his kingdom. I mean, this is, this is out there to the Jew. But that's exactly what happens. And that's incidentally is what much of the book of Acts is about. The gospel going to all people, the whole world, the Gentile nations. A very unusual thing. That now the Jews are not just the people of God. Now it's through Jesus that you become one of the people of God. And that goes to all people. I mean, think of this room. This is a room full of Gentiles. The gospel has come to us. This was fulfilled, what Jesus said. Number two. Just kind of a, as a word of explanation. Well, that's very good, Professor King. Thank you for the class on eschatology. I mean, why, 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 why go so in-depth on words? Right? By the way, preaching is not just merely a lecture on something. Preaching the Bible is intended to call us to action, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Why give such attention and time and maybe a boring speech on using a word like world in the Bible. Because it's my great passion for you to know how to read the Bible. And to understand the Bible. And to live out the Bible which I believe is the key to life. I believe the best thing you can do in your life and for your life and for your family, for your wife or husband and for your children is read what God says. To do so you must understand how words are used. We want to learn how to read the Bible so we can live it out rightly. 
John says in 3 John, I have no greater joy than when I hear that my children are walking in the truth. To walk in the truth, you must rightly understand the truth. Praise God for the day in which we live where there are so many helpful tools to help us. So this is one of the other books that are out there for, for you. This would be a good book to get them read through with someone. It's called Knowing Scripture. It's essentially principles for studying the Bible, kind of like some of what I've gone over this morning. It's the clearest, simplest, easiest to read book on the issue of how to study the Bible. Thirdly, many Christians, and you can see why, you can see why when you just read the text, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony of the nations, then the end will come. A view among many Christians is the gospel, which obviously we know our mission is to take the gospel to all people, and many Christians believe that when that gospel is taken to all nations or all people groups, then Jesus will return. Incidentally, if you want to hear the best proponent of this view that I know of, it's John Piper. So you should look up Piper's, he's done a lot of work on this, he's very strong on this view, but incidentally, John Piper influenced, I believe, David Platt, David Platt holds this view, the president of the International Mission Board. The whole strategy of the International Mission Board is, is uh, driven by an interpretation in some ways of this text that we want to get the gospel to all people because they believe that by doing that and only when we've got the gospel to every nation, only then will Jesus return. So this is significant how you interpret this text. And so if you want to see the other view than mine, read Piper. He's the best on it that I know of. But a person like that would say, This interpretation that you're proposing would possibly blunt or dull our zeal for missions. If you don't think that we need to get the gospel to everybody and then when we do, Jesus will return, then why would you get the gospel to everybody? Well, there's a lot of responses to that. I'm going to give you one this morning that will hopefully encourage us to have a zeal for missions. I do not believe that the motive for the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in the history of the church and in the Bible other than Jesus our Lord, of course. I don't believe the motive of the Apostle Paul in spreading the gospel to all places was so that by spreading it to all places, this will bring about the return of Jesus Christ. I do not think you'll find that thinking in the letters of the New Testament or the book of Acts. I don't think it's there. I think Paul had a very different, very clear purpose and zeal and motive for missions. And you'll find it in Romans 15 wherein he will talk about taking the gospel to places where it has not gone yet. Romans 15. What should be the source of our zeal for missions? Taking the gospel to all people. Well, we sang about it in almost every song this morning. Did you notice it? Praise him for his grace and favor. Praise my soul, the king of heaven. That everyone might know your name. Praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forevermore. The motive in the scripture for Paul the Apostle for missions, which I would argue should be one of our primary motives, is the glory and praise of God. You find it in Romans 15 beginning in verse 8. It's not to usher in the second coming. Romans 15 and verse 8. 
For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Let me break that down just for a second. Jesus Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's the Jews. Jesus became a servant to the Jews. Why? To show God's true, that what God has said is true, and in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that Abraham was promised that one from his line would come. Verse 9. And here's another reason Jesus came as a Jew. And in order that the Gentiles... Nations might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. One of the primary intents of Jesus coming and dying on the cross is so that the nations, the Gentiles, will praise God. There's the zeal for missions. That God be glorified and honored. To glorify him. And he goes on to express that by quoting several verses from the Old Testament as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. See, throughout the Old Testament you see imagined and Look forward to a time when God's people would include the Gentiles or the nations or people like us in this room. Verse 10, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Here's Paul's zeal, Paul the Jew, Paul the Pharisee, for taking the gospel to places where Jesus has not been named so that these people would praise God and rejoice in God with God's people. Verse 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, oh, if those weren't enough, if those Psalms weren't enough, Isaiah the prophet adds this. The root of Jesse will come, even who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Drop down to verse 18. This did not, this did not dull Paul's missionary zeal. Rather, it was the fuel for it that God be praised who is worthy. Look at Romans 15, 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring about the Gentiles to obedience. There's another good word for a preacher. Quit talking about yourself and talk about what God's done through you to bring about the Gentile. Notice, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. You see what he says? I want to go to places where Jesus hasn't been named and notice why. To fulfill scripture. And notice what that scripture says. It's a definite statement. Those who have never been told of him will see. They will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Verse 22. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have Long for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul has this plan in his mind to go to Spain because the gospel has not been preached there yet. Very interesting in his lifetime at that point. Fascinating. Now a couple things for you to think about. Paul's desire is to go to all people everywhere so they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly for him and his ministry to the Gentiles who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. We need people like that now and always. 
and Paul was one of them. If you think back to Acts 1.8, a verse many of you memorized, and you probably might have to help me because I never did memorize it. You will be my witnesses. You, you know, wait in Jerusalem, you will receive power by the Spirit. You will be my witnesses. Where? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. Now, that's a little neat phrase. You know what, you know how, do you know what the Romans meant when they said ends of the earth? Do you know what they meant? They meant Spain. They meant Spain. You can do a little work and research on your own. You'll find that to be the case. And that's where Paul says he's going. He's going where Jesus hasn't been named. So no, understanding Matthew 24 is seeing it fulfilled in the first century with the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles does not mean our missionary efforts will be dulled. Rather, we want to take the gospel to all people. Why? So that all people would praise God to glorify him, to extol him, to recognize the most important reality in life, that God is God and Jesus is his son. And the most important reality in life that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins to bring us to God, to reconcile us. He's raised from the dead and you should praise him for that. What an opportunity to gather on Sunday morning and to gather on Sunday night and use your voice and your time to praise God who saved your soul. It's not just a rote thing we say, you know, praise his name. You know, for endless days, I'll sing your praise. No, we should long for that and desire that because he ransomed us from sin. And he reconciled us to himself by his own flesh because of his death. And friends, we have, we have come here as Christians to praise God. And that's why we need to go to others so they will praise God. So let's be like the Apostle Paul and make that our heart as we pray together. God, we thank you for your word. I pray I haven't muddled it. But rather, we would all search the scriptures to see if these things are so. That God should protect our church from false teaching. And Lord, from my own idiosyncrasies as a leader and a teacher. And God, from my own emphases, which oftentimes are unbalanced. God, that you'd protect the congregation from that by their own diligent study. And by their own diligent consideration of your word. That we would seek to know you through reading and studying and talking about and meditating on what you say that we'd learn about you from you and by you. So God, give us a heart to love your word, that God, it would be our testimony like the psalmist in Psalm 119. Oh Lord, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That God, we delight in it more than golden riches. And God, that we would long to, to know you and love you and now praise you because of your greatness and your mercy and what you did for us through Christ. And God, that we would have a zeal God, give us a zeal like Paul to take the gospel to other places that they would praise you, that they would know you, that they'd recognize your greatness and your glory. God, make it so in Jesus' name. Amen.